Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in today's show, I'm talking to Lachlan Page about Colombia in South America. We all pick up ideas about a country from a lifetime of media, and our opinions can be shaped by stereotypes that persist even once a country has changed. Colombia is associated in many people's minds with drugs and cartels and violence from the 1980s and 1990s, amplified by TV shows and films about the time. But while there are always dangers in any country, Colombia is now quite different. Lachlan talks about how he ended up there after prioritising travel first and work second. He gives recommended places to visit, tips for safety, and talks about whether being bilingual changes your personality, uh, cross-cultural marriage, and much more. So I hope you enjoy the interview today. Lachlan Page is the author of Magical Disinformation, a spy novel with a satirical edge set amongst the Colombian peace process. So welcome, Lachlan. Thanks, Joe, for having me. Oh, no, it's good to talk to you about this. Now, first off, I wanted to talk about your interesting jobs. You've worked on very interesting things, volcano hiking guide, Red Cross volunteer and language teacher, among others. So how has travel shaped your career? Yeah, I put all the most interesting jobs on there. There's a lot of other jobs that perhaps weren't as interesting, but I've really been you know, interested in travel since I was a, a teenager and tried to travel every opportunity I could through my university years. I think when I was about 18 or 19, I did a, a backpacking trip through Europe for two months. Um, later, I studied abroad in France and the UK, and that kind of eventually led me um, down a a trail of doing those kind of different odd jobs. Eventually, when I returned to Australia, I graduated university, did an office job doing market research reports. And from my previous Spanish-speaking skills, I actually got that job because it involved a lot of reading um, in Spanish and then um, using that information for the market research reports. And one of my bosses was from Costa Rica. So I think that kind of idea of travel and language definitely shaped that early part of my career but I guess I kind of soon realized like a lot of people that that office type of job wasn't for me and I set off after that and went to Guatemala and continued learning Spanish and that's where through the school I was studying at I got in touch with a volunteering organization which put me in touch with the Guatemalan Red Cross in a central highland city called Coban which is kind of a, it's a little bit off the tourist trail but there's a very popular river waterfall nearby called Samuk Champay, which a lot of people go to. And so it was in that area. And I was there for about three months, um, two to three months doing volunteer work with the Red Cross. And that was kind of based in what I'd studied, which was international business. So helping them set up spreadsheets and very basic Excel type things, but also getting out into the field occasionally 
um, for a lot of health checks and a lot of health information where I was doing more the organizing of the data and things like that, not the actual health aspects. And then from there, really, I kind of continued traveling through Central America and originally had my sights set on Panama. But as I was going through Nicaragua, I did a, vol- a kind of volcano trek tour. And when it finished, I saw that they're actually hiring for people to become volcano guides. And so I ended up applying and pretty much being accepted on the spot and did that for six months. And then later down the track, I you know, continued in other various jobs before I trained to teach English as a second language. And that's kind of led me to what I do now, which is teaching at a university in Australia, not in English, but in humanities and business subjects, but focused on international students. And so I still, pre-pandemic, did a lot of trips in China and Indonesia for that as well. So mm. I guess that kind of, yeah, that, that travel and that idea just led me to various opportunities that you probably wouldn't have if you just stayed in the same place or even in your own country. I think it kind of pushes you outside of your comfort zone and you're exposed to new opportunities. And I think, yeah, that's probably, you know, how it's really impacted it. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, it sounds like you may travel the priority and then did work and obviously kept yourself alive and paying the bills while you travelled, as in the travel came first and the jobs came second, which I feel yeah. like a lot a lot of us, we choose the work first and then we fit travel around it. But I can see how you've kind of created a career around the travel. But I want to just come back on the volunteering. So mm. years ago, I tried to volunteer with something and they basically said, sorry, to be honest, you're not very useful like we really want people Mm. who have medical skills or who can build a well or who can help with bridges and and I was like yeah "Yeah, to be fair I I get that but so you found that your office skills are useful because I think a lot of people want want to volunteer but may also feel like they're not useful enough yeah I think yeah because I looked at a lot of volunteer programs and a lot of them are like that where you need specialist skills and people still do them and they pay a lot of money to do them but I knew a lot about that from my studies that wasn't always the best way to go about it. So, and I think possibly this volunteer opportunity, if I had done it from Australia saying, hey, I'm going to come over and do this, they probably wouldn't have said yes because it's not something that you would go to all of that effort to to bring someone across. But because I was there, because they explained a bit about where they needed help and how I could help with my skills, we kind of found that fit of, and and it wasn't just me, there was a, a student there of accounting and she had a little bit of knowledge in that area, but she was still studying and I'd just finished studying. So I had a little bit more professional experience than her to be able to help her. And so it was that idea of my skills were needed rather than, you know, I was just kind of jumping in there and doing something because I'm from Australia, for example. So, but it is a tricky aspect to try and find something where you can really add value with your skills. Yeah, exactly. And I think you were right. I mean, you were in a place already and then you looked for opportunities. That's, that sounds like what you do. But let's talk about Colombia. Your first novel is set there. And obviously you've travelled loads of places. So why Colombia? What about it captivated you enough to write a book about it? And tell us about your, your trips there. Yeah, well, after all that travel that I just mentioned and I started to teach English, I actually went, I had a job lined up in South Korea to teach English. And so I did that for one year. And at the end of that experience, I thought, where do I want to go to continue teaching English, to continue working? And because I'd traveled in Colombia at the end of that trip that I mentioned before, I thought, okay, I'll go back to Colombia and I'll start there again and spend one year 
to see how I go. And I ended up staying four years, met my now wife there, and we've since returned to Australia. And But I ended up working, teaching English there and also teaching university subjects and studied further there as well. So I think initially when I went to Colombia, it was very much off the tourist trail. It wasn't on the usual backpacking route of South America. There were was, you know, quite a lot of travellers in the backpacking scene, but not as much as if you go to Peru or to even Central America or Argentina, Brazil, for example. So it was very much off the beaten track. There was a lot of the places you would go to, there was only maybe like one hostel to stay in. So everyone ended up at that hostel and people were very friendly, very curious. It just felt that had that new vibe of um, being untouched. And I think also Colombian people, and everybody says this about Colombia, that when you go there, you're welcomed by everybody and everyone's friendly, everyone's curious, everyone chats to you. And it's a very welcoming culture. And I think South America in general or Latin America in general is like that. But I think Colombia in particular has a special kind of welcomeness that it gives to tourists. And, and also, you know, Colombia has mountains, jungle, desert, beaches, a whole range of the spectrum of all of the kind of um, landscapes that you find all over the world. So you can do a lot of things in a, a smallish area, even though Colombia is a big country, but in a small, you know, the one country in that small area, you can do a lot of things that you could experience, for example, all over the continent of Latin America. So I think those two things probably led me to return to actually live there. And with my book, I mean, I'd always dabbled with that idea of writing a book and I, I love spy novels, I love travel books, and so I like the idea of combining the two. Um, and I think because I'd lived in Colombia for four years and travelled back and had family there through my wife, it's probably the country I know the best after Australia. So I thought it was really right for a, a book. And there's quite a few spy novels and action movies that are set in Colombia, but they tend to focus very much on the same story of drugs, cartels, guerrilla, with very little depth. And I felt that it didn't really capture the nuances of Colombia. For example, people who have lived in Colombia, there's a running joke that whenever Colombia is in the movies or books or TVs, it just had, it shows it in a very different light to how it actually is. For example, there's the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and they're in Bogota and they show it's hot and tropical with chickens running in the street, whereas in reality it's very cold and rainy and it's quite a developed city, right? It's, it's on similar levels to a European city, for example, in many ways. So I felt like that had to be addressed and the real Colombia had to shine through. And also just there's a lot of, let's say, wacky, crazy stories and little events that have happened in Colombia that you wouldn't believe are true, but they are. And so I included a lot of those in my book, which um, I think just proves that, that fiction can be a lot stranger than the truth and vice versa in Colombia. It's hard to sometimes know that line between fiction and truth. And that's kind of a big theme, I think, in the book as well. Oh, lots to unpack there. So first of all, you mentioned the range of natural landscapes. So tell mm. us some of the highlights uh, of the country in terms of natural beauty and some of the places you recommend visiting. I think for me, the, my favourite place in Colombia is the what's called the Coffee Triangle, which is an area in West Colombia around the cities of Manizales, Armenia and Pareda. And it's where most of the Colombian coffee comes from. So there's rolling green hills, coffee fincas, small colonial villages, beautiful scenery, 
a very good coffee if you can find it. It's a lot of Colombians uh, drink Nescafe, although that's changing and people are trying to drink, you know, the actual good coffee from Colombia. So I think the coffee zone in particular is a highlight for me. Definitely something, you know, that's a, a very unique, I think, Colombian place. Also, you know, in terms of beaches, the, the stretch of beaches from Santa Marta in the Caribbean coast running north is probably the most popular area for beaches. And there's a national park there called Tyrona National Park, which is a national park along the coast. And you actually need to hike in about one hour to get to the beaches. So there's not like big sky rises and there's not a lot of um, development there. So it's quite a very secluded place and yeah, the beaches are amazing and as you go further up that coast you get to the Guajira Peninsula which is probably not so well traveled as the other places in Colombia but it's again the beaches are very good and there's it's like a desert landscape and you can see flamingos and there's very good seafood and very interesting aspects with the indigenous culture of the, the peninsula there so I'd probably say those are some of the, the highlights there's a lot of other places that I could mention but I think for me, they're probably the you know, the main highlights or the things that I find interesting and love to, to, to explore in Colombia. I'm just looking on the map, on Google Maps oh, right. as, as you're talking. And, and people can't picture it in their head. It's on that northwest yeah. corner, I guess, of South yeah. America. But it, but as you were, you said there, the Caribbean Sea. And I was like, oh, yeah, like some of it's on the Caribbean. And then the other half yeah. borders the Pacific, right? So those must be very yeah. different coasts. Yeah, well, in fact, so if you kind of zoom in on the map, so you'll see roads leading up on the Caribbean coast, but on the Pacific coast, um, there's almost no roads going to the coast. You'll see there's the port of Buenaventura, which is on the Pacific coast. There's a city there, and that's one of Colombia's two major ports. But all that other coast, there's actually no roads that go there. So you either need to fly in or you need to go by boat through different river systems. And some of those areas as well, especially towards Ecuador and especially towards Panama and kind of a lot of that area is quite untouched and has had a lot of conflict and still has a lot of conflict. So there are probably no-go zones where you wouldn't go or there's a heavily heavy military and guerrilla presence. I haven't travelled there, but a lot of people I know have and they it is very different. It rains a lot more on that coast. It's a lot more tropical, kind of jungly, I guess, right up until up until the coast on the Pacific coast, that is. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's just, just come back on that because you've mentioned the drugs and cartels come up and then mm-hmm. you just mentioned military there and a no-go area. So let's address the safety because it feels like yeah. there has been a dangerous reputation in the past, like Medellin, I guess it was back in the what 80s really, whereas I think now there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. I mean, every country has its dangers, obviously, but what should people watch out for and what are the ways to behave? in order to make it a safe country to visit? I think most of those kind of the, the things to do with you know, military, guerrilla, paramilitaries, those dangerous aspects are in those outer reach, outer reach areas of Colombia. So you wouldn't normally get there as a traveller. So I, I don't think that's really kind of something that people would come across. But I think in terms of all of Latin America in the big cities, there is definitely crime and sometimes violent crime. It's obviously improved in terms of the dangerousness of a city, they usually use the per capita murder rate and Bogota now rates below Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, Baltimore in the US. So Bogota, the capital, is actually quite, is a lot safer in that respect than a lot of US cities, which is an interesting kind of way to look at 
look at it and it really throws people when you tell them that. But there still is a lot of crime. And so I think the usual tips like pickpockets, so having an internal pocket or a pocket with a zip um, is very advisable. I'd say while traveling there, you wouldn't have your wallet in your back pocket. Likewise, at a cafe or restaurant, especially if it's outdoors, you'd have your bag with a the loop of the bag or the strap looped around your leg, not leaving laptops or phones out on the table, even if they're right in front of you, because there can be groups that distract you very easily and then they just take it right out from under your nose. So that's something to be very, very wary of. And with, I think, any types of you know electronic devices that are quite expensive, it's not a good idea to have them out and and uh, and shown. And Colombians have a saying called um, "dar papaya," which literally means "give papaya" or "give popo," which is sometimes papaya is known. And but that's the literal translation. But what it really means is don't kind of put yourself out there in a position where people can you know take advantage of you easily or don't tempt fate. So it's kind of saying, don't walk down the street opening your wallet with your iPhone and with, you know, flashy jewelry. So I think those types of things are advisable. And I think also things like, you know, with taxis, you have to sometimes be careful in Bogota. Um, there has been holdups in taxis and certain aspects of, you know, you're getting in a taxi late at night and the taxi driver might not be the real taxi driver. So there's things like that as well where, you know, they have apps or a number you can call to order taxis safely. So that's kind of recommended as well. Yeah, a lot of these things are sensible things to do in, in any country. And I think when we're thinking about a trip, then it's thinking about those things and, as you say, behaving in an appropriate way. But I, I wanted to come back on, you mentioned before, you mentioned colonial villages in that uh, that coffee triangle. But how how does that complicated history of indigenous people and colonization how has that affected the places so uh, so tell us about some of the interesting places that reflect the history uh well i think yeah obviously the the legacy of the spanish um i guess we call it invasion or conquest of um the americas you know has had a big impact in colombia so a lot of the architecture a lot of the buildings you'll find you know beautiful cathedrals ancient kind of forts on the um, Caribbean coast that were trying to keep the English and Dutch pirates away from the Spanish gold and silver. A lot of the um, very small villages are probably the most kind of, because um, a lot of the cities I think in Colombia have, you know, developed and they've got new modern skyscrapers and um, office buildings and apartment buildings, whereas a lot of the villages, um, which in the past were quite important towns in in the new um, Colombia, but have now really been left behind and so a lot of them can feel stuck in a time warp so for example Villa de Leva is a small town near um, Bogota that's very nice Mompos which is a, a town on a river towards the Caribbean coast it was a very very important town in, in Colombia along the Magdalena River but is now very much you know stuck in a time warp it's um, often kind of linked to the novels of Garcia Marquez thinking that Mompos was used as a setting for his a lot of his novels. So there's obviously that the architecture, I think, is very much reflected in that Spanish colonial style. However, the indigenous culture, as I mentioned, up near the coast, near Santa Marta, there is um, a, mount, a small mountain range called the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. And there you'll find um, what's known as the Lost City, which is a kind of like ancient ruins of the Tirona people and the various other smaller indigenous groups around there 
who live there and that was only discovered and I you know say discovered in inverted commas um, in 72 so it wasn't really something that was touched a lot by the Spanish in, in many ways but is something that is kind of a very interesting indigenous site I guess and actually in, in Bogota the gold museum has a lot of gold artifacts from the Muisca people who were the um, indigenous group around Bogota and the central highlands of Colombia so yeah there is I think that mix of that heritage between the Spanish colonial but also indigenous culture that you can explore in Colombia. Mm, yeah, and I love cathedrals. <laughs> what was the best cathedral or the beautiful architecture that you would recommend for those of us who love uh, the religious side of things? Well, to be honest, I don't know a lot of the you know cathedrals. I, I think compared to maybe some other. Latin American countries, they're maybe a little bit smaller than some of the other ones or even the ones in Spain. But I know there's the Convento de Santo Domingo in Cartagena. So that's on the Caribbean coast. Cartagena is the is a beautiful walled city that looks a bit like Cadiz in Spain, if you've been there, or Havana in um, Cuba. It's kind of a fortified walled city. And yeah, the Convento de Santo Domingo, there is quite an impressive church and convent. In the, the very, very far south, I actually haven't been there, but there's a very impressive cathedral called Ipiales Cathedral, and I forget the name. It's Santuario something something, Las Lajas, I believe it's called. I actually haven't been there, but I've seen photos of it, and it looks amazing. It's kind of in a canyon and looks almost looks like, a, I guess, a German-style cathedral. I also wanted to ask you about speaking different languages, because obviously you're Australian, so to my ear, I can hear your Australian accent. But then when you're saying some of those Spanish names, it sounds like your Australian accent disappears. And of course, you lived in Colombia a long time. Your wife's Colombian, so presumably yeah. your Spanish is pretty good these days. How, how does it change the way you think, or does it change the the way you think when you speak in different languages? Do you turn into a different personality? This is something I've heard from other sort of bilingual friends. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, when my wife and I, we met, we only spoke in Spanish for the first two or three years. It wasn't until we had a, made a trip to Australia for a holiday and we kind of started speaking in English and she got a bit of practice. And now, you know, she's fluent in English, but we still speak Spanish at home. So we speak it every day, dipping in English occasionally. So it's yeah and it's something like I actually also studied I did a master's in linguistics and so I looked at a lot of these things about does it change your personality does it not um, when you interact and I'm not sure if it changes my personality a lot but what I would say is that when you are speaking in that language you need to communicate you're usually communicating with the people who speak that language so I think you kind of adapt to their communication forms their patterns the way they communicate and so I think it's a bit of a Latin stereotype, but I think it's true. They're quite outgoing, loud, and very talkative. So I guess I probably become a bit more like that when I speak Spanish. I know also in Colombia, in particular in Bogota, they're, they're quite formal in the way they speak and they're very indirect as well. So instead of saying, it's hot, can you turn on the air conditioner? They might say, oh, it feels hot in here. And uh, don't you feel like it's hot? And that's kind of a, a clue to you that you need to, open a window or turn on the air conditioner. So there's that kind of indirect way. So I guess in that sense, I think it probably does does change the way I interact and communicate with people. 
That's interesting you say that because I feel that's very English uh, because when I came to Australia, I, I came to Australia in, in 2000 and traveled mm. around. Obviously, I lived in Australia for a number of years and I often felt like I couldn't even communicate with Australians, even speaking yeah. the same language, because uh, as a British person, we come at things from an angle. Like you say, we're very indirect, whereas the Australian yeah. culture is very direct. So that's yeah. interesting you say that. I wonder if I wonder if that is a European influence or whether that is, is that yeah. part of the indigenous culture as well? I think, yeah, probably part of the indigenous culture, but I think also a European thing. Because I think, you know, I think I've experienced that in Spain a little bit. And, and it's funny, the English thing, because in Bogota, a lot of people wear tweed jackets and scarves and ties and they dress quite formally and wear brogues. And so there is a, a lot of people <laughs> in Bogota, um, I think, kind of really like that English culture and have maybe a similar type of temperament in some ways, in Bogota at least. But, yeah, and I think, yeah, you're right, it is different to the way in Australia we're probably a bit more direct and um, to the point in that sense. Yes, and, and I also wanted to ask you about cross-cultural marriage, not just cross-cultural, cross-hemisphere, because I'm also yeah. the same living in the UK. My husband, I met in New Zealand, and so we have to travel back to New Zealand for yeah. family reasons. And people are always like, oh, you're having a holiday. It's like, no, it's a family trip. It's like going to see <laughs> someone else. So, so I mean, there's obviously there's pros and cons on cross-cultural marriages, but how do you find that? I mean, is Colombia now somewhere where you travel for family trips or can it still be a holiday yeah it's a tricky tricky thing we, we, we usually go back every year or two years you know pre-pandemic but whenever we go back we pretty much have a week in Bogota where it's family and friends and things like that so it does feel like when we go back we have to spend probably that week in Bogota catching up otherwise the family might know you're traveling somewhere else and they'll ask why didn't you sit, stay with us longer or so I think that's definitely an aspect of traveling and yeah the, you know I don't mind going back to Colombia, but sometimes my wife would say, oh, why don't we go to Japan or to Malaysia or somewhere closer in Asia? Because, you know, she loves travel as well. And she often, you know, going home for her isn't necessarily a kind of fun, exciting trip. It's great to catch up with family and friends, but it's not that same kind of adventure that she would like, I think. So, yeah, it's a tricky situation, I think, to, to deal with. But 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 also, yeah, you, you do feel a bit guilty that you have to travel there and see people and that maybe takes out from other trips that you would otherwise take. Yes, exactly. And it's something we always think about too. It's like, yes, we want to go to Japan or we want to go somewhere else, but we need to go back yeah. and see family. And yet also that makes it, I, I, I feel like this is the way we're going to stop racism in the world is by everyone intermarrying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, one thing with that is to, go to, to get to Colombia from Australia, you have to go through Chile, Argentina, or you go through the US, through Los Angeles, San Francisco. So we try to kind of maybe stop off, stop off at some of those places along the way. And that, you know, gets a bit of the travel in as well as catching up with family and, and friends. Right. So this is the books and travel show. So apart from your own book, what are some books about or set in Colombia that you recommend? So there's a few books that I recommend. One is called Oblivion by Hector Abad. In Spanish, it's called El Olvido Que Seremos. Um, and it's a memoir written by um, Hector Abad, who's a journalist. And it's about his um, father, who was a doctor in Medellin during the 80s. And he was actually killed by paramilitaries. And so it's a very heartbreaking, moving story about his father who tried to make the world a better place or make Colombia a better place 
that was eventually killed for, you know, his kind of social work um, as a doctor. And it's, it's been made into a Netflix series, which is out, I think, but I'm not sure if it's in all the Netflix all around the world. So that's a very, a very good book, I think, to read and probably check out the, the series as well, which I haven't seen yet. The second one is called One River Explorations and Discoveries in the Amazon Rainforest by Wade Davis, who's a Canadian anthropologist and ethnobotanist and has done a lot of work in Colombia identifying plants in the Amazon. And his mentor, his professor was Richard Evans Schultz, who spent a long time in the Amazon. And so in the book, he kind of, it's like a dual narrative or a dual biography of what um, his mentor Richard Evan Schultz has done and then what he's now doing in Colombia. And they looked at, you know, hallucinogenics and medicinal uses of plants. So it's a good um, way to get in touch with the, you know, indigenous side of, of Colombia. Another one is a fiction novel by a Colombian author called Juan Gabriel Vasquez, but there's an English translation. The, the novel is called The Sound of Things Falling and it's a kind of a noir novel about the Colombian drug trade in the 90s. And it involves a law lecturer who's looking into the seedier side of Bogota and is investigating a friend's murder. And it shows you know, his family and the connection to that murder and how the, you know, the, the early 90s and late 80s of Colombia really affected a lot of people in the country. And probably the last one I'd say is another kind of nonfiction book called My Colombian War, A Journey Through the Country I Left Behind by Silvana Paternostro. And that's, again, a memoir about her as a journalist leaving Colombia to study in the U.S. And she went through all of the wars in the 80s in Central America and then later came back to Colombia and looked at Colombia having lived outside the country but also as being um, from the country and looking at that period of the yeah, late 80s, early 90s where there was a lot of conflict. And so they're probably the, the four I'd recommend. And also if I can throw in a, a cheeky podcast, the Colombian Calling podcast is also a very good um, you know, podcast I listen to for all things Colombia. It has, it's run by Rich McCall, who's a journalist and writer in Colombia, and it's, he interviews a whole range of people that have, have to do something with Colombia, so I'd also recommend that. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your book and everything you do online? Well, I've got a website, so lachlanpageauthor.com is the best way to go directly there. Um, and my book's called Magical Disinformation. So if you type Magical Disinformation into Google, it should pop up with all the places you can find it, um, all the bookstores and online um, bookstores where it's available. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Lachlan. That was great. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.